This is the continuation of the Notoriously Episcopalian podcast where we are having conversations about where the resurrected Jesus is in the 21st century. Today I'm very happy to be with the Reverend Mary Balfour Van Zandt. Um, we are at the Abbey in Birmingham, and this is the first podcast that we've had a chance to record in person and at the Abbey. And so, Mary Balfour, I'm glad that you're able to come out this evening and talk with me. Um, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about yourself? Okay, thanks for having me, Kelly. Um, I am the rector of St. Michael's Church in Fayette which um, Kelly knows well as she served as deacon there. Um, I've been there since July of 2014. Um, Fayette is a small parish with about 40 parishioners. Um, I recently graduated from the Seminary of the Southwest in August. Um, No, not August. In Austin in May of last year. So I'm coming up on my one-year anniversary of graduation. And I believe I am the most newly ordained priest in this diocese. I call myself the baby priest. Um, And ordination season is upon us again, so that will be changing soon. And I can't claim that title anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, as lawyers, lawyers are baby lawyers for like three years. So um, Maybe I can keep going with the baby priest. If you want to stay with the baby priest, I think you probably (laughs) could. But certainly uh, some people would be happy to say you only get to be a baby so-and-so for a year. (laughs) Oh, no. I I hold that title close to my heart and cherish it each and every day. Um, So... As we have done in the past, as you know, this this podcast we've had conversations with several folks. You are the first ordained person to come up in the rota. We've talked with um, some seminarians um, to this point, and so you're the first priest on deck. Uh, you'll be followed up by uh, Katie Nakamura Ringers is going to take a go at this, and then I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to interview myself or if Katie will do it, but I'll take a go of it as well. And so I've asked folks each time to kind of tell us which passage they have selected and kind of retell that story for us. Um, So which passage did you select for uh, this conversation? I selected um, John 20, um, 1 through 18, which I initially gave away but have taken back um, because it it, it actually was the... um, gospel reading on Easter Sunday this year and has um, really been in my heart um, during this Easter season and I decided that there's enough meat in there to talk about it multiple times so um, that's the passage I chose Um, and if you're unfamiliar with that passage it is when um, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb um, early on the first day of the week after Jesus's death and um realizes that uh, Jesus' body is no longer in the tomb and uh, runs out and tells um, some of the other um, disciples, Simon Peter and the others, um, that, that he, his body is no longer there. And she actually has a conversation with Jesus right after that. Um, and what I, I really love about this gospel is... Um, just like the other four Gospels that tell this sort of same story right after um, Jesus' death, um, there are differences in all of them, but there's also similarities. Um, 
And it, in all four Gospels, um, it is a woman who is the first witness to the resurrection. And in all four, um, an enormous stone is rolled away from the door. Um, and in three of those four, uh, someone dressed in dazzling white robes gives the news that Jesus is not here. Um, but in this Gospel, there's a, there's a significant difference. Um, yes, it's a woman. It's Mary Magdalene. But she comes alone. Um, and when she finds that the stone is rolled away, uh, she doesn't enter the tomb, but goes and tell, finds these other dis- disciples. She's afraid. Um, and the disciples come and enter the tomb, and they confirm that Jesus' body is not there. Those wrappings and cloths that they had covered his face with um, are left behind, but there's nothing else there. Um, but, and, and the disciples leave and go back home, but she stays, and she weeps. And she says, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. This is what she tells the two angels dressed in dazzling white when they ask her why she's crying. But then all of a sudden, Jesus is there and he speaks to Mary. Only he's standing behind her and her back is to him and she can't see him. And she thinks it's the gardener until he calls her by name and says, Mary. And then she knows. She turns and she sees him, and she says, I've seen the Lord. And she goes and tells anyone who will listen. So to me, there's such power in she doesn't leave. She stays, and she weeps, and she mourns for her Lord. And I think that story sounds so familiar, not just because we know that story, but because it's part of who we are as people. I mean, I feel like that story is me sometimes. I'm weeping, searching for that next thing, and I look in directions that are not right, you know, and, and I think others have experienced that. Our faces and our hearts are turned away from what's truest and most real to us. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> so this was your first Easter Sunday as a priest, mm-hmm. and because St. Mike's is a smaller church you were the only clergy person there that's right and so you got to um you did not have to see the pulpit on easter sunday you got to preach this gospel on easter sunday how was that to be a baby priest on your first easter sunday preaching this gospel about mary magdalene and uh, it was hard because um we are not Jesus. We're humans. We're imperfect people. And so we're trying to recreate these stories and tell them and make them come alive and include ourselves in them or the people that are sitting in the pews in them and, and see how we can relate to that. Um, so, yeah, we're Easter people. As um, a, a past bishop here in the Diocese of Alabama, Bishop Parsley, loved to say, we are Easter people. But how do we get that message across? How do we convey that? And St. Michael's, like so many churches, um, often gets a few people only on Easter Sunday and only on Christmas um, Day or Christmas Eve. So there's great pressure to really give this fantastic sermon so that they'll come back the next week. Um, So it was hard for me, and I really wanted it to be special. Um, But I did exactly what Mary did, you know, looking for things in the wrong direction, looking for love in the wrong places instead of just trusting in Jesus. And in the end, I finally remembered, just get out of the darn way, you know. 
And I think I ended up preaching an okay sermon because of that, because I just let my scaredness and worries move. Um, And, you know, it was a celebration. And it still is, because Easter's not over yet. And it really never is if we live that kind of life. Yeah, each of these podcasts goes up with the hashtag Easter is 50 days uh, to try to, to remind us that the actual Easter season, the Easter tide, goes all the way up to Pentecost. Um, now, this was the most sought-after passage um, that you claimed, relinquished to Tommy Watkins, then decided uh, to, to pick back up and share, um, but it was the most requested because I think there is a lot kind of going into it, and, and you seem to kind of be telling it, focusing on the fact that Mary stayed and Mary weeped and, um, and then had that experience with Jesus can you talk a little bit more about why that speaks to you in that way? or Yeah, and I did not choose it because it's a female, because like I said, that's, that is very apparent in all the Gospels. And we all know that women are very important to ministry, So I, 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 and I feel that way too. I didn't choose it for that. I chose it because I know how she feels. That weeping and wondering, when, God, where are you in those moments? Um, and in her most devastating moment, I mean, Mary Magdalene was Jesus's good friend, and he was hers. And so she had just witnessed this horrific death. And then three days later, they're like, darn, they stole my friend. You know, what could, what could she possibly have been feeling in that moment? And I can relate to that. I have had many moments in my own life um, where the easy thing to do, I think, would have been to just run away and not feel those feelings, not feel that weeping, not feel that sacredness, um, that holiness of sadness. Um, I remember going in my own discernment process um, and feeling like, golly, the easy thing to do would just to be continuing in my great job, making good money, and um, just doing what I'm doing, you know, instead of the hard thing, which is, to really listen to what God is telling us, what that voice is that's being pulled, how God is pulling on our heartstrings. Um, so I really relate to her. And I, I think she is such a, a person that people can kind of get their mind around and can imagine that feeling of, um, even though the disciples were not perfect people by any means, that they were not, I think we do kind of want to put them on a pedestal of some kind. Mary Magdalene is one of those people that I can just, for some reason, have always been able to picture her in my mind um, and that weeping. And it also connects me to when Jesus weeped at Lazarus' grave and that humanness that comes out in in Jesus in that moment um, because Jesus was both of those things. And I think we forget that sometimes. Um, and that that weeping is essential. It's a part of life. We are not promised goodness all the time. Suffering happens. But then so does Easter. You can't have Easter without Good Friday. One of the things that kind of really speaks to me with, with Mary Magdalene, with the, with the crying at the tomb, and that makes the story so powerful, is that notion of Good Friday. We know the women were the ones that didn't leave. Um, when when everybody else was gone, the Gospels seemed to agree that the Marys and the women were the ones that really saw the whole thing. And and if you if you take Good Friday and the image of the cross and the women there, including Mary, and then you put it together, you, just, you kind of figure out where the weeping comes from right. because she's had the whole experience. 
disciples opted out of some of the experience for, for you know, variety of reasons. I'm not sure if I wouldn't have run away as well. Like, I would, all, this is one of those stories where I remember being a little kid when they would try to get you to think about would you have been as brave as Anne Frank, and mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I would have done it. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if I would have hung in there with Mary. I would like to think I would have, but I may have been just like all the rest that ran away. And so in that vulnerable moment of Mary weeping at the tomb is also a whole heck of a lot of strength Absolutely. there. Absolutely. And, and that staying there um, is really kind of a powerful image when you, if you zoom out a little bit and consider the, the whole story that she's gone through those few days. Um, and thank you for saying that too, because I do think that, you know, we want to put weeping and emotion sort of in a weird place, like that's not important. But I'm just learning in my life that it is, and we have to be where we are in that moment. Um, you know, every day I wake up and I think about the people in my life and the suffering that's going on, and I am a fixer. I want to fix it, and I can't. I have to just help people be in the moment that they're in, whatever that is. And there's strength in being in that moment. There's strength in saying, I'm sad about this, or this sucks. Or, I'm happy about this. Whatever that emotion is, I think we just so easily want to rush that stuff under the rug. And Mary Magdalene is a wonderful example of just being where you are. And sometimes that's just where you need to be. And that's where Jesus shows up. Exactly where Jesus shows up. And says, I'm right here with you. I am here. I have not left you. I'm here forever. I'll always be your friend. So you you've you've done a Christmas and an Easter. So you've had the C and E churchgoers both times where you <laughs> you preach, preach the the big sermon. And so the question is, you know, we, we we can talk about this in its context within the story. But part of our jobs, our our vocation, calling, privilege, whichever word you want to use, is to how do we bring that forward to the twenty first century to make it matter to folks in the pews, folks in the streets, folks listening on the internet. Um, So what is it about this story that you think comes forward into the 21st century? And, you know, Mary would go on to the, go back to the disciples and say, you know, she's the first one that gets to say, I have seen the risen Lord and and begins this great journey that would be the foundation of, of the church. So... What is this? What in this passage do we bring forward to today um, for the church? I think it's the very end. I think it's the courage that Mary has when she turns and sees him and says, "I have seen my Lord." And she goes and tells anyone who, who will listen. And I think that's what our job in the church is: is to go and tell anyone who will listen. Now, I'm not saying that we need to go out there and all be the greatest evangelists in the world. That's not how everybody style. Um, I recently got into a big discussion with a group of other clergy um, at St. Michael's when we're at the communion rail and I give uh, the bread. I try to say the person's name. I would say Kelly, the body of Christ. And there's much controversy over that because some people will say that I'm trying to be Jesus and I'm not trying to be Jesus. But there is something about having your name called about saying, Kelly, this is for you. Mary Balfour, this is for you. Jesus saying, Mary, I'm here. Having your name be spoken. I think that's really important 
Um, and so, I, I, as silly as it may be, names are really important to me and something that I really focus on because, again, not that I'm trying to be Jesus, but that I can so, say to people, you're important to me. Your name and who you are is important to me. And that's how I try to share Jesus' love and be with people and show them. I mean, it's just a small thing. I have a friend who is a clergy person, is a new clergy person, who was telling me that he was having trouble, he's in a really big church, remembering everyone's name. He was praying through the parish directory and their faces, and I thought that was so beautiful. That was so beautiful, and it reminded me of the story of that name calling um, of what Jesus does, and then what she does in turn, and is not afraid anymore, and has said, okay, I've had that moment of sadness, at that moment of weeping, and now I can go and be joyful and share God's love. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to do. And that works in a lot of different ways for different people, you know. Um, for some, it's just sitting and being and being that listening ear. For some, it's marching in a parade, you know. It, 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 it hits the gamut of different things. But I think if we're not actively telling the story of Jesus, then we might not be doing what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. Um, I don't want to name, I don't want to point fingers, but I feel like that's an important part of who we are, um, is actively telling that story, just in different ways. What about, you know, if we, if we are all kind of in, if we are Easter people trying to, to live into this big dream and idea of God and our Sometimes it seems like the church is at a point where we are we're doing exactly what Mary did. We're turning and turning and turning and turning and turning and not knowing where to look or where to go. And maybe, uh, you know, Jesus might be just over there um, and, and we're too busy kind of turning to try to figure out where we should go. Where do you hear Jesus calling the church today? I think that's a hard question and there's multiple answers to that. Um, I think Jesus is calling us to be with each other, and that's the bottom line, is to love each other no matter what. Love our brothers and sisters, black, white, gay, straight, love our brothers and sisters. And that's hard for people to understand, and it's hard for them to get their mind around because they want to compare biblical one biblical text to the other. I'm not interested in that. I am just interested in God is love. That's my theology. That's what I believe, and I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. Before I went to seminary, I knew that that was my theology, but I couldn't explain that. You know, I had the heart, but I didn't have the head. And I think seminary and now this first year of ministry, and I hope that this continues for the next 20 years, is helping me put language to that. In meeting people where they are, in loving them where they are, and going to places that are uncomfortable. And I I I don't consider myself a social justice preacher. I just think that's the gospel. I just think that's the gospel, is loving each other. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus was not with the elite. Jesus was not with the rich. Jesus was with the poor. The woman that was hemorrhaging, the woman you know that had been sworn, um, sworn away by all the others, the woman at the well, you know, not just women, men too, but he was not with um, those that looked exactly like us. And I think that we just forget that so often. Um, at St. Michael's, you started a ministry, Beans and Rice Ministry there, which is awesome. And we recently just opened that up to serve a hot breakfast. And the hardest thing for people to do is to not be in the kitchen and serve the breakfast. 
What I want them to do is to sit there with other people and have a conversation. And it's not because they're scared. It's because they don't know. Maybe it is because they're scared, but they don't know what to say. We don't know how to begin conversation with people that are different than us. I, I, I struggle with it. We all do. Um, we don't want to offend people. We don't want people to feel like because they're dirty that they're not welcome. Um, we don't know to just how to be, you know. And so it's been a struggle for us to not be in the kitchen and not to serve, but to just be. We're getting there. And more time that goes by, we continue to do that. So I, I really think that's what Jesus is calling us to do, is to be with each other and to love each other. This is a broken world. It just is, you know. But if we continue to have our faith, if we continue to show God's love to each other, I have to have hope. You know, they always tease me in seminary that I was the girl that always had the glass half full and was Pollyanna. So what? I live into that. I want to be that girl. I do. Yeah, it's broken. Yeah, there's things that are terrible about it. But I have faith. I just do. And that is not anything short of Jesus putting that in my heart. I had a conversation the other day, actually right back here, uh, with someone talking about all the problems in the church and that they just couldn't find, they were having a hard time finding hope. And I said, well, I'm not going to tell you you should find hope in the church. But I tell you, the thing that I hang my hat on is I have hope in Jesus. And it sounds so Southern Baptist, like I should maybe bump on a Bible or something like that. But it's, it's like, at, like at the end, of, like if we hope in the in the church and everything that we, you know, we we, you know, the Episcopal Church has created this beautiful thing and a prayer book and you know a translation of the Bible that the Baptists still use and think that that's how Jesus talked. I mean, we did all these wonderful things, but if that's where our hope comes, I think it lets us down over and over and over again. Yeah. yeah, but if we come back to you know the story of Mary at the tomb and we come back to this ridiculous but awesome and amazing part of our faith which is that Jesus lived, died, defeated death and resurrected it's like I mean that's reason to have hope um, how we communicate that to the churches I think um, and I would probably put a, a, a finer point. I helped the people of okay. St. Michael start a beans okay. and rice ministry. Um, you I did pushed not them. Start, I knew you were going to uh, correct me on that. You pushed them I helped to them. It. I helped them to and encouraged them along the way and tried to, to give them resources to be able to do it. But I think um, you describing them doing the hot breakfast and the figuring out how to be uh, is a really great kind of image of the church responding you know because it's one thing to just hand out a sack of food it's another thing to to sit down and really begin to develop relationships with folks um and the i know the folks at saint saint michael's uh, are such good-hearted people and to to and it does take work to talk to folks that are so different it does and and as i tell them all the time and i really believe this i think that sitting is is living out the gospel that's really what i think it is i think it's building the kingdom of god and living out the gospel and all of those words that we want to use you know it's just like you said it's very easy to hand a sack lunch to someone it's another thing to spend time with someone and it's not in our comfort zone. It's not in mine. And I'm an extrovert. It, it is a struggle for me. You know, and will I say the wrong thing? Will I offend them? You know, it, it's hard. 
But then when I turn around and I look at that little playground and I've got the kids from St. Michael's and the kids that don't ever get to swing on a playground swinging together, I'm thinking, there's Jesus right there, right there in front of my eyes. That's why we're here. And I think that is an excellent snapshot of a dream for the church. Mary Bounforth, thank you so much for being with me this evening and sharing your thoughts on this gospel passage and for spending a little time hanging out at the Abbey. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a joy.